Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hey, this is Punching Out, a show about work and about how capitalism affects you. I'm Chris. I'm Emily. I'm Ariel. And we're just going to get in a little bit about our own history as, as workers. And also, we're going to interview my dad, um, who he's kind of a template for how workers have been affected in Rochester from layoffs, which is kind of what this episode's about, because we feel that uh, layoffs are really the most visible way capitalism has affected people here in Rochester, even though it's, it's still not uh, outwardly talked about. Uh, it's still something that I think everybody has felt. Um, and, and, we, and I felt that my own story, my own family story, and my, and my dad's story fits right in with that narrative. And so we're going to be parsing out a little bit of that while telling you a little bit of ourselves first. And this is our first episode. We did have one with a previous team earlier. Um, they were all kind of education focused. Um, we're a little, little bit more varied than that. We have a little bit more experience. Um, I'm myself. I'm from a, a media background. I went to school for that. Um, kind of focused more on broadcast journalism as a as a video journalist. And I mean, I mean, I went into that because I feel that it's important to use what skills you have to to fix institutions that you think are severely lacking. Um, and I always felt that media is too much of a, a middle and upper class perspective, something that at least this show in its own small way is going to try and fix. And I mean, I, I think my work experience is fine in media, but it, it's also, it, it has its own set of challenges. Um, and I mean, I know Ariel, you, you might want to go into a little bit of your own background and you're definitely been much more hectic than I have. Um, I also think of the three of us, I'm the least educated. Um, so, it shows. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Well, so I, I graduated high school, and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I um, didn't know where I wanted to go. So I ended up just playing in bands and working a series of um, sort of horrifying retail-based uh, service jobs. And I did everything from, like, food service to, to moving houses. Um, but, uh, you know, after a short stint trying to go to college and then realizing that I found the debt terrifying... Um, and also that, like, being an academic librarian or an intellectual historian, uh, it's, it's not exactly a guarantee of, uh, of future stability. I'd sort of dropped out. And luckily, through a series of contingencies, I found myself working at a, uh, at a nonprofit law firm uh, doing housing law, which it turns out is a pretty amazing job. And I'm very lucky to be there. I like everybody I work with. They take care of me. And it's, it's uh, both intellectually and emotionally satisfying to do. Um, so, yeah, lucky me. He's also made cool music, everybody. Um, he made a lot of uh, pop-punk metalcore that I enjoy, although uh, people really seem to hate him, my taste in music. Well, but, let's, you know. let's be fair here. This is Juvenalia we're talking about. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, we should play your EP at some point on some show in the future. Let's I not. Mean, let's not do that. I mean, I mean, here at the station, they do play music, and maybe we'll just get bored one episode and just spit that out. It fits the spirit of what we do, too, I think. Well, if you want a taste of it, uh, just hit rewind and uh, listen to the, the intro. Um, I did that. So oh, har- we have har- a sweet back. theme song. It's stuck in my head. <laughs> I dream about it in my sleep now. It won't get out of my head. That stuff writes itself. Yeah. Um, 
Anyways, that's enough about us. Uh, well, Emily. I didn't get to introduce myself yet. There um, you go. My name's Emily. I am originally from Corning, New York. So um, I've lived in Rochester about four or five years now, maybe. Um, I used to work in retail as my first job. I had some office assistant jobs when I was in college. And after college, some nepotism allowed me to get into healthcare, um, which I'm not qualified for since I studied psychology and women's and gender studies. But now I work in a laboratory and affect people's lives behind the scenes. And I don't get paid enough. It sounds like you're like creating mutants or something. Yeah, what do you do with all that power? Yeah. Do you go mad with it? <laughs> affecting people. Yeah, I don't even know what you're affecting my life. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm the person that nobody sees, but uh, do some stuff that is pretty important, you know? Oh, man. <laughs> Saving she's, cre- she's creating X-Men. Do you, do you, find, that, do you find that the I don't know, the emotional satisfaction of having some imp- impact over people's lives uh, makes it easier to be paid terribly? No, (laughs) no, Um, I know that I am a good worker Mm -hmm. and not treated like such. So, yeah, it's a pretty common theme. I mean, I mean, as far as the interview with my dad, which which we'll get into pretty soon after the break, um, I mean, he's someone who was treated pretty well. Um, I mean, he worked at this company for 20 years Mm -hmm. and he was paid well. But eventually, as he'll tell you. Um, the pay kind of stagnates. Healthcare, of course, as everybody knows, just kept going up, and that cuts into your pay. And eventually, people feel the crunch. You know, everyone everyone kind of looks over their or shoulder a little bit and and thinks that they're the next one that's going to get axed. And it affects everything, and it creates a precarity that I think people his age are unfamiliar with, and people our age. Um, I'm 25. Emily's 24. Ariel's 34. Mm-hmm. He's an old guy. He's an old man. I'm a grandpa. Yeah. He's he's trying to stay <laughs> hip and be with us, but you know we'll we'll abide by that. <laughs> and down. it's something that we we've dealt with for our whole lives, really. As soon yeah. as we've entered any kind of maturity and in the workforce, yeah. So I mean, I think his story ties into our own backgrounds, and it ties into how we. It's a good template for how layoffs have affected Rochester and the kind of economic situation we face here. I mean, this interview definitely has some points where I feel like I related to it, listening yeah. to. Chris's dad's story and some of the things that he said just really fit right in with our show. So I'm excited about it. Like I, like I mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, it's sort of uh, an origin story for millennial precarity. It, you can see, you can see all of the threads sort of uh, coming into some kind of a focus. Um, and they, they're now at the forefront of the way that millennials have to live. Um, so we thought it'd be good to sort of take a look back into the previous generation to see kind of what went wrong and what was the what was the sort of existential flavor of it what did it feel like to be a worker who started out sort of believing the believing the promise that if he just got an education and got a decent job then he wouldn't have to worry about that for the rest of his life that was set you know that's something that just go to school just go to school just go to school make the investment which at at the time that he was doing it wasn't nearly as onerous as it is for us yeah make the investment do the hard work show up and uh, you, you'll have a job. Um, and he, fa- he, he was sort of living at the tail end of that sort of uh, promise, uh, being at all kind of legitimate. And we're just sort of used to it at this point. So um, I, think it's, I think it's a really interesting uh, interview. I'm really happy that you're, you're 
your dad signed on to do it. Continue, yeah, I took up a lot of his time. Yeah, I really uh, I asked a lot of really boring, uh, redundant questions, but I made sure I got what I wanted out of him. You were being thorough. My favorite part of the entire interview is you running away from bees. Which yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah, was yeah. gonna say that. I decided to do thing. it outside. Uh, I'm not he sure why. Died for this interview. It was really nice. I don't want to take that for granted. <laughs> but uh, yeah, bees are like a top two fear you really for me. Put yourself oh. in harm's way to get. Yeah, this well, done. I put my body on the line for this show. That's, and I, I want our whoever's listening and for you guys to really respect that. Um, okay, so uh, that's it for this. We're going to dive into the interview next. Um, you know, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back. This is Punching Out, a project of the Punching Out Collective, and we want to hear about the struggles you face as a worker. You can tell us your stories by sending an email to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, and we're on Twitter, at punchingoutwayo. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. All right, so today we're going to be hearing the story of my dad, Salvatore. He was a project manager for a local imaging company for two decades, from 1990 to about the middle of 2011. And in many ways, this story is a pretty common one, reflecting the experience of many Rust Belt industry workers of a certain age, uh, manufacturers especially, but more so in Buffalo. But here it's been, you know, imaging and photos and i'm sure you kind of know where i'm going with that what develops out of this interview is a sense of shifting expectations about employment security and compensation my dad worked as an industry professional at a time when his industry was in transition and not really for the better as listeners well know this image industry was the backbone of the city's economy for much of the 20th century in multiple companies but as the century came to a close technological changes and the increasing globalization of the market led to a severe downturn that rippling effects impacting every single aspect of our local economy and our social society. But knowledge of this general trend leaves out an important aspect to this, the lived experience of the workers caught up in these impersonal forces. I was there for 20 years, and um, I had a good run there as far as um, consistently, uh, I'd say I was consistently upwardly mobile. In other words, I started and my next job was a, after a couple of years was a promotion, and then a few years later I got slightly promoted to another job, and it was a nice career path, upwardly mobile. And um, but the way it ended up, um, the last I don't know five years that I was there, I was working in a, in a program. I was in program management, and I can you know, let me know if you want to go into more detail about the jo- actual jobs. But I was in program management. The program that I was in. Um, they just decided uh, they were going to do it, you know, a different way. Um, a lot of the, the work went um, maybe overseas, you know, and they consolidated and did it in a different way and um, evidently decided that uh, there, there was a whole bunch of jobs that were no longer, that were redundant or no longer, you know, necessary. What Salvatore says next is classic management euphemism. It's called an involuntary uh, reduction in workforce, and this company had been doing it for, for years, you know, laying a lot of people off for, you know, like every few months for years. Involuntary reduction of workforce. You can almost see the company heads in a conference room, eating muffins and listening rapidly to an overpaid consultant parsing focus group data about how people find the term layoff to be upsetting. Perhaps something more antiseptic would be better. Yes, the language is the problem here, not the summary destruction of someone's livelihood. Following along the lines of this theme, 
Salvatore goes on to recount the strangely depersonalized way in which he was fired. They actually uh, went into work one morning, and uh, my boss called me into his office like he may have any other morning, and he just launched into this kind of a uh, almost a scripted uh, talk that this is uh, this is your I forgot what the words were now, but this is your uh, release uh, paperwork and. You won't be, and I, it's just weird because he was kind of like a robot that morning, you know, whereas we had been, you know, had a normal person-to-person relationship up to that point. Um, and they actually, after they said what they had to say, and he brought his boss in to talk to me, and he tried to be as nice as he could, so again, telling me that this had nothing to do with my performance, you're a good performer, and good luck. Uh, and they actually, and this was the part that, you know, would probably upset almost anyone, especially when you've had a good employment record with no incidences or anything, and you're just good. Um, they actually walked me back to my desk, uh, made me hand him my laptop, which had all my my whole work life on it, oh, really, and stood there while I packed a couple boxes, and he walked me out the door. From my dad's telling, there wasn't much in the way of explanation for this firing. He was clearly not owed any as far as the company was concerned. We asked what effect these looming involuntary reductions of workforce had on the workplace culture leading up to the actual layoff. Salvatore said there wasn't much of one, but not because morale had been unaffected. It was just the opposite. I would say no because, I mean, at this particular company, um, I would say almost every year, at least every few years, everyone is looking over their shoulders because they would. there was talk in the air of involuntary uh, action, uh, work reduction in workforce actions. So you're not all all the time, but again, every couple of years we were all on edge, wondering if it was going to be us. And I managed to not, you know, be caught up in it up until that 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 point in 2011. So, but no, overall, I would say no. Things were, you know, the same as usual. On the subject of unionizing. Salvatore admits that there wasn't much in the way of serious union talk, though he pointed to what he called the blue-collar workers, who did have a union. The irony here is that, though above the blue-collar workers on paper, he was much more disposable in the workplace than his counterparts. Now, there already was a union at uh, this company, uh, the, I, and I'll call them the blue-collar workers, you know, the guys out in the uh, warehouse and, you know, uh, at production lines and working in the warehouse, driving fork trucks and doing all that. Uh, there, so they had a union, but not for the white collar. We're not the office workers. Um, Did you feel powerless because of that? Oh, yeah. As a result, Salvatore describes the way in which this hypervigilance in the face of increasing job insecurity affected his attitude toward his employer. I had a family, a large family to support, and, um, you know, there was no way that, I mean, if, if this was the best that I could do at that point, um, okay, I mean, one one example would be that it would drive me to constantly, almost, well, not constantly, but very often just be looking for a job, you know, just within the company and maybe even outside the company. How do I get out of this downward spiral? You know, I have to find something where I'm making more or I can go into another company even and make more or be on a better career uh, path. Despite the frequent feeling that he needed an off-ramp from a job that seemed like it might evaporate at any moment, Salvatore was bound by the constant financial obligations he'd accrued throughout his adult life. When you have a lot of bills, you have a big mortgage payment, kids in private school, you can't, 
you know, you can't stop the revenue stream to go look for a job. You know, you have to just, you have to keep working and then try to fit in looking for a job in between there. When asked what he thought were the causes of the stagnating wages and benefits, my dad was frank in pointing the finger at market forces and the imbalance of power between workers and management. Uh, it's the pressure, intense pressure on management for profits. Now, what other reason would there be in that type of environment? I mean, it's, you know, they're going to, um, if, if the marketplace dictates that they can get away with paying, small, paying out small raises and people won't leave en masse, okay, which is the case here in this city, then they're going to do it. They don't care about, they don't care so much about the, that it'll leave people dejected and maybe unmotivated and all of that. That's not, I, from my experience, that's never a consideration. They're just going to pay the, the single, the low wages because they can get away with it. They know they can because no one can leave because no one's got anywhere to go. There's not a big job market here. Again, there's pressure on management to constantly find a better way or a better, I don't even want to use the word better, and a less expensive way to do business or ditch a particular line of business if it's not profitable to the shareholders. It's shareholder pressure on management. And they're all, the upper management is all rewarded for doing all of this. After the layoff, Salvatore was given a 90-day severance package. He picked up work with his friend's catering business and eventually landed a more permanent job at an area hospital. During this time, he had to renegotiate the mortgage on his home, which he now doesn't expect to ever be able to pay off. His wife, who had previously owned her own business and worked from home, had to find work elsewhere in order to supplement the household income. As of now, Salvatore has found work for a defense contractor, making roughly 80% of the salary he earned at the peak of his former employment. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. All right, so that was the interview. Um, kind of a drag. It is, um, but I think it's it's something that like anyone expects out of someone's story like that. Um, luckily for for us, like nothing got too terrible. I mean, I was in college mm. during all that, so I mean, I mean, the worst that had happened for me was like we had to transfer like you know whose name was co-signed on my student loans, you know, which was that could be a little shaky because what if there yeah. was nobody else? Yeah. But. I mean, we, as he mentioned, we were able to kind of avoid the worst of it. Um, but what the trend I notice in these things, and even before any of that happened, is whenever there's a crisis in capitalism, it's just they, 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 the upper class, the, the wealthy, and the capitalist class, essentially, the, the owners, the managers, they use it as an opportunity to kind of tighten the control they have over the workers and the classes below them. Sure. They They... Make it so that they're still bound to this mortgage. They make it so that wages that are better are harder to come by, so you have to work there and do more things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And he, he mentions that over and over again yeah. about feeling kind of trapped there and feel, like feeling like there really wasn't much of a choice. Yeah. And then eventually how school is too expensive and takes too much time to kind of just do and readjust. Right. So then he had to end up having to just do whatever's there, yeah. which again just is to the advantage of the classes above him. Um, and I think people talk about cl- class solidarity among workers and how that's needed for for socialism or any uh, revolutionary movement to happen. 
Um, but I think what's understated is how much cl- class solidarity there is among the upper classes yeah, yeah. and how they will always protect each other. Yeah. And I think this story and the story of Rochester's recent history is a absolute perfect case study in that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, capitalists are nominally supposed to be competing, but when it comes down to it, they have a union, which is the Chamber of Commerce, right. which is the legislature. And every institution ever. Pretty much, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so one, another thing that, that kind of stood out to me is that um, he was talking about how the people that he worked with, even though they were in just like perfectly good, quote-unquote, middle-class jobs, were beginning to start looking for side work, which is another thing that I think is almost just de rigueur for um, for millennials, right? Right. We even have a word for it, like the side hustle yep. or the gig economy. Um, but that that's just the norm for us. Like we're supposed to have a bunch, like three or four different jobs that pay us garbage and have no security. Um, no retirement. And, yeah, yeah. And it's sort of being, being rebranded as this kind of like re- like rebellious, like free... Yeah free form like, disruption everybody yeah. no but it's but it's not it's just it's just getting us to feel feel comfortable um making an identity out of just like constantly casting about for for work yeah. yeah and uh but the start of that is is in a story like this like 10 20 years ago uh where people are just starting because because of the way that wages are kind of depressed and expenses are going up they're just starting to feel the the pinch enough that they're starting to look for other jobs and I think it's it must be weird. And I mean, for someone like that, and, and when, when things get kind of unstable like that, I think it has to. I mean, he said it, it really didn't, but it has to create this kind of different sense of community in the workplace, right? It's yeah. well, one thing that I wanted to mention was that he uh, repeatedly said that his boss was like a robot the day that yeah. he was told that he was getting laid off. Yeah. Um, and it really just resonates with like taking that human factor out of it like you can't have your emotions attached to the fact that you're ruining somebody's life potentially you know yeah um they worked together they knew each other they were probably buddies Mm -hmm. like and then one day he has to you know come in and tell his friend that Oh, by the way, you don't have a job anymore. Right, and, and do I can't that even, hundreds I, of times. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't even comfort you, right? Like I can't even do this yep. in such and a way. And then stood it. next to him while he packed up his desk, yeah. like surveilled him while yeah. he did it, right? Like walked him out. Yeah, <laughs> because everybody's a competitor That's right. in that system, and, and what that does to community, what it does to the at least potential sense of solidarity from for worker to worker, is it it kind of blocks that whole line of thinking. And I think what's kind of jarring to think is that you know. And we didn't really include this soundbite, but he mentioned to me how, and I, and I asked him, I'm like, did, did this make you think differently about the system you exist in? And he's like, well, no, not really. Yeah, I mean, he, he knows it's unfair. He's kind of a left-leaning person himself. I mean, he's never been like an activist or anything like that. But when he, when he votes and when push comes to shove, he'll choose the most left option. Um, it's a little bit rare for someone his age and his gender, um, but that's what he's done. I mean, because I kind of come from a line of like Kennedy Democrats or mm-hmm. FDR Democrats before them. Um, and he, it's just, it, it's a little bit discouraging, but I think that for people below them that have always lived that, I think they have even less faith because like, at least for someone like him, it's, oh, like I had those decades where things were going well. And this is just, this is a break in that. And yes, maybe it is because of greed. Yes. Maybe it is just mismanagement, but the, the system itself is, doesn't need the wholesale change. And right. I think that that's the biggest divide between someone like us and someone like that, despite the suffering sometimes being relatively the same. Yeah. We've, we've only known precarity. Yeah. 
it's new to him. Yeah. It's just a different form of learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. Like uh, my mom is similar. Uh, She knows that there's issues, but feels like there's nothing to be done about those issues. And when I've had problems at my work and I would kind of stick up for myself because that's the type of person that I am. Um, my mom would kind of get frustrated with me for not just, you know, accepting it, I guess. Um, she's like, well, yeah, you know, that sucks, but that's just how it is. Just how and it is. But it, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't work. <laughs> it just show, it shows how un, like undemocratic the workplace is, right? Like workplace is the is the sphere in your life that is the most totalitarian. Mm-hmm. It is the one that is the most like kind of like everyone kind of a little bit suspicious of each other or something right. goes a little bit wrong. It's kind of like a us versus them, like us versus management kind of thing. Like there is very little actual equality, even in a good, stable, relatively stable workplace like that. Yeah. Um, there's still this sense of of constant conflict, yeah. of class conflict, um, even though that's, again, like that's not thought about in that lens. It's just thought of as, a, as the natural order of things that's when right. it's very new. Um, and, and again, it's something I don't have an answer for is how, despite living those circumstances and, and living that change and seeing how things were good when you started and things got worse and more unstable as you left, uh, how you can't see, like how you can't process that as wow, something's seriously wrong. But you know, it's hard to speak for somebody who's twice my age and, and know that. I guess when you, I mean, I don't have kids, but I would imagine that your dad was probably just focused on like getting food on the table for you guys, right. and yeah. um, it's almost like if he tried to channel his resentment towards like being laid off and being angry it's like that's too much of his emotional energy being drained from like trying to just get through the next yeah. day you know yeah as, um, as you put it sur- but that's survival how it mode is, right yeah. yeah that's how it is for a lot of people our age too yeah. they don't have time to go out and try to change anything because they're investing all their energy in just trying to get by and to be fair i mean think about what it would actually entail to change the system like, right. I mean, even in your own workplace, like unionization is very difficult for a reason. Uh, and people are generally scared of it. Yeah. They don't even want to say the words when they're at work because right. someone might overhear them. Yeah. <laughs> the lengths that the lengths that business owners and like corporations will go to to stop that from happening because they know just how fatal it is. Um, they're, they're pretty extreme. I mean, they, and they act quickly and they, they're very well organized and well funded. I mean, I've been I've been hired um, at one company <laughs> uh where the it's entire hard, isn't it, to not mention the entire <laughs> first day of orientation was them talking about how you shouldn't uh sign any papers for unionization right. um and then i quit and i didn't come back they, after yeah. orientation <laughs> they get to teenagers too like I, i've heard and i didn't know this i never i never worked at this company um but there's a company that is known for hiring a lot of teenagers and stuff like that it's pretty big here and people love it um and they show anti-union videos yep. mm-hmm. uh, to ev- to part-time employees, you know, which are high school kids, college kids. Yeah. You know, people are very who might not have learned a lot about unions in school, and this is one of their first kind of tastes and introductions to what what they are, what it is. And it's kind of just like, no, you're better on your own, like this kind of mentality. Right. And I think the last couple of decades have shown 
um, what happens when you're on your own. It's, well, it's often, lot, oh, sorry, go ahead. A lot of um, like the anti-union talk that at least that I went through at this company was like trying to say that basically they take your money yeah, and yeah, they don't yeah. use it mm-hmm. for anything that's, that's going to actually say. help yeah. you. So it kind of just instills a fear in people yeah. like because they if they don't have an understanding of what unions actually do and right. the bargaining power that a union can have. Right. Uh, they just think, well, I don't want them taking more money out of my paycheck that's yeah. already tiny. It's 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 always put in terms like in terms of uh, coercion, which is hilarious because the workplace, like you say, is a sort of totalitarian environment. And it's a coercive force. The, the the fact that you are working, producing a profit for someone else that is not that not available to you, that is coercion in its most pure form. But you have to do that because that's how the economy is built. But that that coercion is just such a such a background fact of our lives that we don't really consider it to be anything unusual. So when we go into, you know, we're like a part-timer or whatever, when we go into some meeting and like this, you know, boss is showing us an anti-union video, like they, they can still make this fresh argument that this is a form of coercion as opposed to this thing that you're, this water that you're swimming in. Enforcing people in a survival mode. I mean, I don't know what is more coercive than that. Like basically <laughs> it's like a, it's a slow motion threat. I think yeah. it's a threat that's made piece by piece. Like, sure. oh well, you lose your health care. Oh, you'll you lose your wage. Oh, you yeah. lose your ability to to buy to participate in anything. Mm-hmm. To participate in any maybe at first participate in like respectability, being a part of normal society. You know, like having a car or things like that. Yeah. And then also, it's like, wow, am I going to be able to live? Like, so it's just step by step. It's it's a very slow process, yeah. and I think that's why it's harder for people to really see it. Well, the, the coercion of the system is systemic, right? So, like, not any one entity is responsible for the coercion as a whole. They're merely entering into contracts with you as a worker, and you can decide to be a part of that, or you can decide not to be a part of that. You're ostensibly free in this way. Uh, but the coercion is when you don't want to work there and you don't have any other options that meet your actual needs. Like, the, it's the, the responsibility for the coercion is dispersed. Uh, among the among the ruling class, among the people who actually uh, own the companies, so it's a, they can kind of get away with it because they don't ever have to be responsible for it individually as agents in the marketplace. And that's been hard in Rochester because uh, the company my dad worked for and a couple others are ones that were so big, so dominant in in employing people and employing people with good jobs mm-hmm. and good wages for a long time. And it's like, what else is there? Um, and he right. he goes on later to explain. He kind of had to go into uh, a lesser paying job at a local hospital and mingle with uh, kind of working class people and people who are on Medicaid and stuff like that. And it exposed him to a lot of that. And it, it created a new level of vulnerability for mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. that um, I think is, was jarring, but, it, it, but because of where he's been before, he was able to move past it fairly quickly. Yeah. Do you think that that experience made him a little bit more sensitive to, to like working, working workers issues or workers who are like much more at a menial level than he was, he was used to? I think so. He didn't really illustrate that de- in detail to me, but I mean, he is someone who, you know, in like in the primaries would vote for someone like Bernie Sanders, sure. right? Um, yeah, good friend. Which he might have just disregarded as unrealistic at first, even mm-hmm. if he kind of liked what he had to say. Right. Um, so you, you'd think that these kind of things would, would radicalize people a little bit. It seems like it did. Yeah. Um, but who knows? I mean, I'm the, I'm the opinion that things have to get extremely bad <laughs> for a wide because th- I just think that's just how Americans are. I think that's yeah. how a lot of people are in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're, it's hard to sell them on something when they're still able to watch football and have food and see yeah. movies. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, um, so I think that's our time. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. It's um, been real. Yeah. Feel free to check out our website. 
send us some email with some feedback. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.